This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We just got finished with the first half of our show and a great interview with Gil Alexander, host of A Numbers Game on Sirius XM Radio uh, 204. Told us about a lot of interesting prop bets and his prediction for the game. But now we're actually, our next guest, we know is a listener of Wharton Moneyball because he's called in before to our show. Uh, we're very fortunate to have someone who actually played in a Super Bowl so he can give us the player's perspective and someone who's also doing work in analytics now. So we're honored to have Todd Stusey. Uh Todd is a former guard and tackle for a number of great teams in the Vikings, the Panthers, my Buccaneers, and the Rams. Uh, for those of our listeners that don't know, he was drafted 19th overall in the 1994 NFL Draft a two-time pro bowler. He's also the founder, and we'll get into this too, and co-founder of Potentia Metrics and is the president of Potentia Pro. So, Todd, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with, this morning with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Thanks, guys. appreciate having me on. Well, Todd, first of all, it's great to talk to you. Um, we do want to talk about your work with uh, Potentia Metrics and Potentia Pro, but really, you know, given it's Super Bowl week and we're sitting here in Philadelphia with the Eagles being our home team, just can you take us a little bit into the player's perspective about the game? You know, people always say, just it's just remember it's a regular game. Well, it's not a regular game. Could you just talk us talk to us about the mindset of playing in the Super Bowl? Well, one, it seems like the uh, for the last I, I don't know how many years it's been two weeks in between the championship uh, week and the Super Bowl. I can't imagine. Uh, 20 years ago, I think it was only a week. Absolutely, and it was a week. That was, I mean, I can't imagine trying to um, put all that together. I mean, you have, it's a special event, obviously, and you want your immediate family there, and so there's all kinds of tickets arrangements and stuff. And if you were doing that while trying to prepare for the game, it's uh, uh, it, it's it's chaos in two weeks, and so one week would be even worse. But uh, a lot of it in the first couple of days is kind of getting over the sugar high of the championship game and getting all those tickets, uh, things in order. And basically the coaches like, no, you got to get all that stuff done by Wednesday because Wednesday we're going back to work and getting ready for the, uh, for the opponent for us. Back in Super, Thir- Super Bowl 38, it was the uh, Patriots again. Um, and... Uh, I know some guys uh, don't mind seeing the Patriots every every week. Well, one of my no, co- no, that, that that can happen every year, as far as I'm concerned. Well, one of my but... co-hosts, Shane Jensen's a big Patriot, and fan. it does kind of happen but, most yeah, years. No, I know. It but does. Todd, and, yeah, could you? I have. I, we have to ask you this question because we spent the first half hour of the show talking about age curves and age curves in sports and how you know whether it's Roger Federer or Serena Williams in tennis. Obviously, we have Tom Brady in football. But can you explain to us, you played in the Super Bowl, I guess it was in 2003 or 2004, 2003, and Tom Brady's still here. And can you just explain to us from a player's perspective, and also just the work that you've done in analytics, how rare is what we are seeing? And even if we hate the Patriots like I do growing yeah. up in New York, can you just tell us like how anomalous and how, you know, appreciate it while it's here? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things I appreciate most about the Patriots. Uh, the ability to replicate success is one of the more most difficult things. Uh, messages from coaches get old. Um, as your body age ages, you have to redefine yourself. I mean, I was able to be, uh, when I came into the league, I was one of the faster, stronger guys out there. Your fast twitch muscle cells tend to deteriorate quicker than uh, slow twitch and so the speed things that you did successfully as, uh, with speed you had to begin to take better angles be more efficient in your movement um, and there's certain things that I my last year I I was 37 when I retired I, I played three games over the age of 37 and um, it was in those last couple of years I took a lot of uh, I got a lot out of it because it really um, I was forced to kind of redefine myself, and I, I see Tom Brady doing that in, a, in subtle ways every couple of years because Tom Brady can't be successful the way Tom Brady was at 28. He's doing it differently, even if it's in subtle ways. To him, they're profound, and it really requires a commitment that uh, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't play past the age of 30 because at 30, that's when your body really starts to take a significant step down uh, as far as uh, just pure um, um, athletic ability. Todd, this is uh, Shane Jensen. So I, I agree completely. And I think part of the reason that Brady has been able to do what he does, not to take anything away from him, but he plays a particular position and, in fact, a particular style of that position that is maybe a little bit makes it easier to adapt because he's never been a person who, you know, who's kind of strengths rely on his athletic ability and stuff like that it's it's it, do you think that he kind of obviously it's impressive what he's done but you think he was more able to do that than most you know like wide receivers or yeah. running backs or anything like that no absolutely i mean it's uh certainly there's certain positions that have a better uh, ability to basically have longe longevity i mean offensive line and quarterback is uh, we're not in the same uh, category by any means, but it's much more technique-driven. Um, the ability to replicate a skill with a very low margin of error uh, versus pure talent-driven. If you think about it, in a lot of ways, it's managing the downside risk versus really uh, capitalize on the upside. I think one of the real true... Um, Outliers. If you think about somebody like Daryl Green, DB is a extreme, extremely uh, talent-driven, performance-driven uh, position. And the fact that Daryl Green for the Washington Redskins was able to play into his 40s is really quite amazing. And he was still one of the fastest guys in the league at, in his last year or two. So, uh, yeah, certainly position makes a big difference, and the ability to um, to uh, redefine yourself and play more of a cerebral uh, approach is uh, certainly a, a big part of it as well. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball talking to Todd Stusey, former guard and tackle for the Minnesota Vikings, two-time Pro Bowler, played in Super Bowl thirty-eight. If you have a question for Todd or want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Todd, if we could now start making the transition to talk about a, a passion of yours and something that's become 
a business of yours is the world of analytics. So let me first, as I'm making the transition, let me just start with your playing career. And as you said, you played a, a large number of years in the NFL. How did you see, just the before we get into Potentia Metrics and Potentia Pro, yeah. how did you see analytics change within the game of football in the you know 15 or so years that you played in the NFL? Yeah, no, it was only 14. I wish it was 15, but no. Uh, uh, 14 is uh, still, still great. incredibly and let impressive. let me just say, you had yeah, an, no, as you I'm know, we're locker. huge fans, and you had a, a <laughs> tremendous NFL career. And I know you're very proud of your NFL career. Yeah. Um, no, it's, I mean, there was certainly, you start started to see um, early on, there was, I mean, early on in my career, a person like Brian Billick, he was my offensive coordinator when I was in Minnesota, Brian was a guy that was uh, much more aware of the stats. Was uh, I mean, I don't know if it was statistics driving decisions, but uh, deci- uh, statistics that helped uh, kind of identify areas of improvement, where we wind up going, uh, potentially being able to he, – he had basically a KPI dashboard, or key uh, performance indicators, looking at things like explosive plays, uh, play efficiency, uh, which I can get into greater detail, um, the, um, the uh, time of possession, and obviously turnovers. Were, those were the things that he really monitored. He felt like if we won three of those four categories, that we were putting ourselves in a very good position to be successful. Um, but uh, there's the different technology that supports uh, – the, um, some of that is, was starting to come into the into the league. Systems like Exos and DB Sport, which are basically database uh, film management systems that coaches would use to meta tag um, specific uh, dimensional data on uh, plays, so that basically they be, could be easily queried. So you could wind up identifying, show me a cut up where all all plays third and ten between the 40-yard lines with this personnel in. But it required a coach to go in and manually enter all that information. And so hours and hours are spent. That's basically what 80% of the work that's done by quality control coaches, which are the lowest coaches on the totem pole, um, were doing that, spending long hours on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday night to get the – film ready for coaches to begin to do their work on uh, preparing for the game plan. So just so all of our listeners are on Wharton Moneyball, Todd brought up the magic word that people use, like if you were Netflix today, this is what you do, is the magic word is meta-tagging. And you also brought up, and this is where we'll transition to potentiometrics and stuff, you also mentioned that historically, this was done by humans. You watch game film, you put a tag in the film, and now as you said, a coach wants to say, show me all third and ten plays. Well, those have been meta-tagged by humans, so how? But did, doing that, it's got to be so constraining, exhausting, essentially, to do that in a high throughput way across all the games. Yeah, and coaches, in fact, would only do it basically on the games that we played, and they would be doing that almost in real time on the sidelines. There's usually an assistant coach that's standing next to the offense coordinator, writing down as much information as he can um, on our, and then they wind up basically scouting the next opponent, they'll do between four and five games, uh, and that's it, because that's all there's time for. There's not that they wouldn't have value from having all of, let's say we're playing the Packers next week, all of the Packers games uh, analyzed. It's just four to five games is the structural limitation of uh, 
based on using coaches for that meta tagging. So can you tell us, how do you go from being, you know, and then we'll get into what you do at Potentia Metrics and Potentia Pro. Could you tell us, how do you go from being uh, an NFL player to someone that says, you know, maybe there's a gap in the field about, you know, automatically looking at film and putting tags in them and using them analytically? Like, how do you develop your knowledge of analytics, your knowledge of technology? Because I'm sure many of our listeners are here saying, you know, wow, this is a man that went from one very successful career to a world that's seemingly very different. How did you do it? Yeah, I mean, um, so right after, uh, so kind of going into the last couple of years of my uh, NFL career, uh, there was an opportunity to uh, participate in these business certificate programs the NFL would sponsor with, uh, at the time there was four schools sponsoring, it was Kellogg, Wharton, uh, Harvard, and Stanford, so four slacker institutions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's good company. I, I wound up going to three. I went to the Kellogg one, then to... Uh, Harvard and then Wharton um, uh, in 2008, and uh, Ken Shropshire was the uh, uh, sponsor of that uh, program. To, uh, or the he wanted to yeah the faculty it. director of the program yeah exactly and so he um, um, that was a really neat opportunity with uh, with uh, Professor Shropshire and uh, but it really kind of started to wet my whistle on I knew that business uh, getting an MBA was was something that I really wanted to do as soon as I was, as I was done in the NFL. Um, I My first kind of pseudo job was actually working in the marketing department at the Rams right after I uh, finished in 2008. Um, and uh, the Rams were actually, they sponsored me uh, when I applied to business school. And I basically, I was uh, the first um not that I didn't want to go to Kellogg, but it was Kellogg and Wharton was a close number two, and Kellogg had the earlier application, and I was like, I'm 40 years old, or almost 40 years old now. I'm the first one that accepts me. I'm going because I want to get my life started after football, and so anyways, um, it was while at business school at Kellogg that um, I um, was intending always to kind of go back to the NFL front office, but I had an opportunity to kind of have a almost a mentor uh, relationship with someone here in St. Louis that had a young uh, uh, healthcare analytics company and kind of bouncing ideas that I had around football analytics and opportunities and the data um, wind up growing to where um, we kind of collaborated on a few early opportunities that he was working on with the medical school here at uh, uh, WashU, uh, Washington University, St. Louis. And um, it kind of just took off. And we, um, we actually, in 2014, did a tech transfer out of WashU with uh, um, having uh, exclusive uh, commercial rights to their clinical um, uh, registry for cancer data um, developed by uh, Dr. Jay Piccarello. Uh, it's the largest cancer registry with detailed comorbidity information in the world. Um, and uh, we basically co-founded the company in, uh, at the end of 2014, and we've been uh, working with payers, providers, med tech companies, and uh, it's really become the central focus of the company. There was some work that we did in uh, um, some early opportunity work around football analytics, but it so far has 
yet to take off. So where do you see the area of healthcare analytics going? And do you see as you're developing and working in potentiometrics that, you know, maybe, you know, at some day you'll return to your love of football and all the advances you're making in healthcare analytics and metrics, you know, it's, as we always say, the, the numbers are the same, the language is just a little bit different. Do you ever see yourself pushing in the healthcare space and then transitioning back towards football? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's always, it remains a passion of mine. I kind of, uh, I've talked about uh, for a while, kind of starting to blog. I was hoping to get started this year. It's probably going to be pushed back into next year in terms of kind of doing some data journalism and stuff. We'll see if there's something that um, grows uh, into the actual delivery, but um, of uh, analytics and in the NFL or in professional sports, but I certainly think there's an opportunity. There's a massive uh, opportunity in terms of the way that data is collected. The I'm especially um, encouraged about the opportunity around the RFID data, um, just because that's a really rich data source. Unfortunately, teams, no one has access to it uh, in the full form, um, and until that's so, it really... Uh, well, I think that's something we're queuing up for a later stage. But basically, the you, just like you said, there's the math is very similar. The ability to understand, uh, to process information, to be able to make better decisions, to make uh, better allocation decisions as far as resources. Um, it's it's a very similar. The back end is very similar as the front end. That uh, depending on who the user is, who the consumer of the information is. So this is Adi Weiner, and I, I enjoyed, well, I, maybe not enjoyed is the right observation, um, the point about the RFID chip and all that data being held privately. This is something that we as academics have been confronting. There's tremendously valuable data in all sports that, that is being proprietary held by the teams, and we just can't seem to break through that loggerhead and get access to it. Um, do you see that eventually trickling down to the public in, in all domains, or is it just going to sit there as privately for, forever? And or in your space <laughs> healthcare too. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, especially in healthcare, I mean, you have all kinds of regulations associated with uh, HIPAA, etc., that is really, uh, uh, but there is, uh, no, there's data out there. The uh, For all the knocks that the U.S. government uh, receives, and rightfully so in some cases, they actually do a very good job of providing information, de-identified versions, uh, large data sets of, um, um, and it doesn't answer all questions, but it can really answer some of the macro kind of trending indicators uh, uh, around healthcare spending, around outcomes, uh, clinical outcomes. Um, and so the, the there is information out there to, um, but it, in one of the real kind of key pieces that we focus on is around clinical registries. Uh, often people look at uh, electronic medical records as being the end-all, be-all, primarily because it uh, it really, uh, a lot of hospital systems have spent a great deal amount of money putting, talking billions of dollars setting up these systems. But they're, uh, in their essence, they're, they're um, they were built, to uh, off of claims data registries or claims data systems that 
I mean, they're set up to basically support billing, and that's much different than setting up a system to support clinical decision-making. And um, a lot of times the way that the information is captured is not in the right granularity to really uh, to potentially stake a life on it, to make a life-and-death decision on it. And so... Um, we focus on the registry data that tends to be processed by registered nurses, et cetera, to really support the kind of clinical uh, decision-making that we're deeply involved in right now. As as you've pointed out, and actually many of our listeners on Morton Moneyball or many of our speakers, uh, guests on Morton Moneyball point out, at the end of the day, a lot of these problems are going to be solved through better data. And, you know, uh, and so that it's interesting to hear. So, Todd, while yeah. we have you here, um, we actually have a caller who wants to talk to you a little bit about, as you know, maybe we'll transition with you to talk about the game coming up this week. And obviously in Philadelphia, it's obviously on our minds. Um, Paul from Chicago has a question for you. So, Paul, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. You're on the line with myself, my co-host, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, and more importantly, our guest this morning, Todd Stussy. Well, thank you very much for taking my phone call. This isn't the first time I've called in, but uh, uh, living in Chicago, just that one-hour time count time zone change makes it much more difficult for me to get up and get on. But my question is, uh, since a lot of the, particularly the offensive linemen, were contemporaries of Mr. Stussy, um, who does he think should get in? Who do you think, who does he think will get in? And it's, uh, on another aspect, uh, you know, you got Ray Lewis first year and Brian Erlacher, uh, your comments on taking two of the same position on the first-year ballot. Well, Paul, first, thank you for your call. And, um, uh, Todd, just in case, I think I'll see if I get all these right for people, and you'll correct me, Todd, if I'm wrong. I think the following offensive linemen are uh, up for the Hall of Fame. Tony Baselli, Alan Fanica, Steve Hutchinson, Joe Jacoby. Um, let's see here. It looks like Kevin Mawai. Kevin Mawai, and I think those are the offensive linemen. So um, back to Paul's question. Any of those striker fancy as guys you were like, while you were playing, you were like, wow, they were great, or any of the defensive guys that are going up now, you know, the Brian Urlachers of the world or Ray Lewis, uh, any thoughts on those players? Yeah, you know what, I, um, I'm obviously Ray Lewis. I mean, he's... Uh, his bus has been probably made a couple of years ago. I think it's a, a slam dunk, no brainer. Um, but um, as far as offensive linemen, I really, uh, I think Kevin Mawai uh, really distinguished himself at that position of center over the years. Uh, um, Tony Baselli, uh, obviously uh, limited career as far as his longevity, but he was uh, clearly one of the, the top offensive uh, tackles in the league for five years, six years, um, uh, before he really started succumbing to those injuries. Um, it's tough because his contemporary at that time was guys like, to me, Jonathan Ogden is the best offensive lineman of our era. Uh, it wasn't even uh, close. Uh, probably the next closest would be a guy I played against uh, next to for a long time, Randall McDaniel. Um, but tackles tend to kind of be on their own a little bit more and uh, uh, kind of stand out a little bit more. But um, I think that um, Joe Jacoby, uh, it's, I'd love to see someone like that get in. Um, Steve Hutchinson, I think, is certainly worthy. I don't know if he's this year or a couple years from now in Alan Fanica. I think that there's some really strong candidates. I I don't think Tony's going to go in the first year. I just don't think that he's uh, – or no, actually, he's been up for a couple years. I, I think he'll eventually go, but I think he's going to be someone that spends uh, another year or two maybe kind of waiting. 
So that's it's great to hear your uh, thoughts on all of these players. And so let me ask you another question. How do you think about the game that's going to happen this Sunday? Obviously, the Eagles fans are happy to be back in the Super Bowl. Maverick, we even talked about this. If I've got this correct, um, you played in the Super Bowl against the Patriots. And I think the next year, the Eagles played in the Super yep. Bowl against the Patriots. So that was the 2003. So the Eagles haven't been back to the Super Bowl for you know 14 years. And obviously, we've never won a Super Bowl. How do you think and see this game playing out? And specifically, you know, um, can the Eagles play the strategy of you've got Two big horses in LeGarrette Blunt and Jay Ajahi. Use your offensive line. Run the football. How do you see this game playing out? I think that uh, it, one, and also just FYI, I was also, I think the last time the Eagles were in the NFC Championship game prior to uh, last week was when I was with the Carolina Panthers in 2004. So um, there's all kinds of Philadelphia crossover. Um, but um, anyways, I didn't mean to bring up a sore subject. But No, uh, it's okay. As long as we win this Sunday, all the past yeah. will be forgiven. I, I think that certainly the um, the ability to maintain uh, reasonable down and distance, to basically to uh, have efficient play calling to where not getting it along down down a distance. I think it's going to put um, Philadelphia in a good situation. It's difficult to do against uh, the Patriots. They're going to come out with a number of different fronts, and they're. I don't think they're overly concerned about. Uh, I think they'll blitz potentially to try to provide run support. So I think it'll be kind of a low scoring first half. The question is, is what happens. As we all know, the Patriots are really good at kind of hitting the gas pedal right before halftime and going in and then coming out in the second half, it winds up separating. I mean, I would love to have a really close game that uh, that uh, it can't be obviously as close as last year's game, but um, I think the Patriots and their experience uh, wins out in these kinds of situations. I think uh, Belichick is just amazing when it comes to managing um, the uh, overall process at the Super Bowl. The experience matters, and uh, I, I would love to see. Um, I'd love to see Wentz in that huddle for this weekend. Obviously, I think that that would be a game changer. But based on the personnel they have and uh, and the experience, it's probably the Patriots again. So let me ask you two related questions. How much role does the offensive line play in some sense, like when your starter Wentz goes down? I don't know if in your career any of the starting quarterbacks behind you went down. How much does the offensive line play a role saying you know, to Nick Foles, it's going to be okay? Like, don't worry about it. We're gonna we're we're okay here. How much role will the Eagles' offensive line, and they've got some stars on the offensive line? How will they play a role in some sense, protecting Nick Foles, calming, calming Nick Foles? Does the offensive line have a huge role in this game? Certainly, the uh, especially for an inexperienced quarterback, like you know what we got the protection. You just keep your eyes downfield, and we'll wind up making sure that. Um, that we we wind up covering you, and if there's a blind spot, we're going to make sure it's in the same spot. So you don't have to. We can manage the protection in a way that is able to kind of help out that young quarterback. Um, 
you asked about uh, experience with uh, having transition. We lost Brad Johnson in '98. Now we happen to have Randall Cunningham uh, on the on the bench. That worked out pretty well. Yes, it did uh, for the Vikings. Um, and um, when I was in Carolina, we had Jake DeLome come in in 2003 uh, to replace Rodney Pete. But uh, so we had some good. Uh, it's always good to have a good backup. And uh, um, Doug Peterson did a nice job uh, bringing in Folds for that. But uh, I think. Um, you know what? Nick Folds is no longer the the backup. I mean, he's kind of gotten his sea legs underneath him. I think he's going to wind up doing a good job of managing that clock. The question, I mean, managing the uh, the ball. The question is, is what happens? Is, are the are the Patriots able to give a little wrinkle that winds up? resulting in a turnover. I don't think blitzing is going to be a huge factor. I think it'll be more blitz for run support than it will be for protect, uh, for uh, uh, to pressure the passer. And I've got to ask you one last question since I have someone that played in the NFL and someone that's also into the analytics world, a topic we debate all the time here on Wharton Moneyball, momentum. Does momentum exist? And if it does exist, who do you think has it going into this game? And do you think as a player momentum shifts in the middle of a game. Does momentum exist in your mind? Yeah, no, uh, and I've, I've listened to you guys talk about this a ton. It's, uh, momentum is, uh, I think it exists, but it exists in a different way than it's been discussed. Uh, I mean, the whole hot hand, uh, uh, I think, is a fallacy when it comes to the NFL because the ball gets distributed greatly across. So it's not like you have certainly um, – the way to think about it, I think, is in terms of how a team or an offense or, or a defense is in sync with each other. The, um, the especially on offense, you really it's re- you need to have eleven guys seeing the defense in the same way, reacting the same way, being on the same page, and really kind of following the script. Um, if one guy uh, blows his assignment the chance of a negative play goes up by like a tenfold factor. So it's, uh, it really is a matter of everyone being on the same page. The quarterback, the, the wide receiver breaks at the right time when the quarterback is, in, is exactly where he expects the, um, the quarterback expects him to be. And so when that – it's my belief that when you're really in sync, it is – there is some correlation on previous uh, play to next play um, because you're just like everyone, the, the engine's hitting all, all cylinders, everyone's seeing the things the same way. And, but then there's also the, that's where coaching street, uh, uh, um, game strategy really comes into play where you can wind up coming out of halftime and there's some big adjustment that the defense makes that could potentially disrupt uh, momentum, and the momentum could shift in the other way. And so those kinds of game strategy can really um, make, make or break a, uh, in, um, the, uh, the momentum of a game. And obviously a turnover or something like that is uh, hugely disruptive and probably unlike any other uh, sport in terms of changing momentum, but uh, those also have to be taken into account. Well, Todd, we'd like to thank you for, first of all, for being a longtime listener, for a caller, and now as a guest here on Morton Moneyball, we've been talking to Todd Stusey, former guard and tackle for the Vikings, Panthers, Buccaneers, and Rams, two-time Pro Bowler, 
But the Super Bowl must bring back memories for you and, of course, co-founder of Potentiometrics. So, Todd, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Thank you so much for having me, guys. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.